Well, hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Harbor Teaching Podcast. We hope that the messages you will hear are both uplifting and challenging. And now, welcome to the Harbor. Uh, we're going to be in James 3 tonight, but before we start reading, I was wondering if we could play a quick game. Would you guys be down for a quick game? All right. It's very simple. So you're going to see an image on the screen. And so here's the first image, right? So when you see this image, uh, it might look familiar. It might remind you of maybe something else like it that you've seen before, okay? So can anybody tell me what mountain lightning reminds you of? Mountain Dew. Let's see it. In fact, it is Mountain Dew. Okay, let's go ahead to the next one. We've got, yes, give yourselves a hand. You guys are great at this. We got magic shapes. Can anybody tell me what that reminds us of? Lucky Charms. Let's see it. Indeed, it is Lucky Charms. Good job. Good job. All right. Okay, now this one might be a little tougher, but if, but if we have any sneaker heads here, can you tell me what this shoe reminds you of? Air, Air Force One? Let's see it. In fact, it is the Nike Air Force One. That was a good one. You guys deserve a hand for that one. All right, we got one more. Can anybody tell me what this one reminds you of? High School Musical, let's see it. And there it is, okay. All right, give you guys a hand. You guys did a great job. All right. So, uh, by the way, no shame if you saw pictures of your childhood or your present reality. I've drank my fair share of Mountain Lightning over the years. It's delicious, okay? Just like the real thing. Um, No, but in all honesty, Mountain Lightning uh, and all the other things that you saw on the screen are what we might call an off-brand product, okay? And so the idea behind an off-brand product, as I'm sure you know, is there's an already existing product that's more popular, that's more valuable, and a store will offer you a cheaper alternative of that product. And the idea is they, they wanna make it seem, look, taste as much like the original as it can, but you can't actually call it Mountain Dew. You have to call it Mountain Lightning because it's not the same and it doesn't live up to the original, right? And the reason that you were able to recognize these copycats right off the bat is because you were familiar with the original brand. So I appreciate you playing my game. The reason for it is because in James chapter 3, what we're going to be looking at is the fact that true wisdom comes from God, but the world offers us a lot of off-brand versions, if you will, of wisdom, right? The world tries to give us wisdom, uh, but it never quite lives up to the original, which comes from God. And so, just like we are familiar with Lucky Charms and we're familiar with Mountain Dew, we want to be familiar with God's wisdom so that we can tell the difference. So, uh, as we do that, I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then we can jump into James chapter 3. So, dear God, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for bringing everybody uh, who's here into this building. I thank you for our time of worship, and uh, I thank you that we have the opportunity to gather in your name and look at what your word says. I pray that you'll speak to us through it. God, help us to gain wisdom from your word and help us to be able to distinguish uh, what true wisdom is. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so James chapter 3. Uh, You can turn there if you have your Bible. If not, we will have it on the screen for you. We're going to start at verse 13. 
says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his good works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So first off, let's define wisdom, because the Bible speaks a lot about wisdom. And you'll, you'll notice that the beginning of this verse starts with, who is wise and understanding among you? And it makes that distinction wise and understanding, I think, because wisdom and knowledge are two slightly different things. So compared to knowledge, wisdom is more practical, right? It has more to do with how we live. And so you could say if knowledge is knowing things or knowing about things, wisdom is knowing what to do. That's the simplest definition of what wisdom is, is knowing what to do. And there are different kinds of wisdom, as this verse tells us. There's the wisdom that comes from God, which is true wisdom, original name brand wisdom, but the world offers us a lot of off-brand versions of wisdom, meaning, and I'm sure you can attest to this whether you're a Christian or not, that as you go through life, there are a lot of different sources of information in this world that are trying to tell you what you should do, that are trying to tell you the best and the wisest way to live your life. And so it can be hard to tell who we should listen to. Should we listen to this political party? Should we listen to this podcast? Should we listen to this religion? A lot of different people have opinions on how life should be lived. But as we know from Scripture, true wisdom comes from God. And this makes sense because there's no one better suited to explain how life is to be lived than the Creator, the one who created both you and the world in which you live. Just like if Elon Musk were to describe to you how a Tesla works, that would be a lot more credible of a source than, say, me, who's never ridden in a Tesla, right? Because he created it, he has the authority to describe what it is, how it works, and how to operate within it. And so, just like there are identifying features on a box of Lucky Charms to tell you, this is Lucky Charms and not magic shapes, right? So you look at the color of the box, you look at the text, you look at the little leprechaun mascot, and you're able to tell this is the real thing. This is the original, right? So in the same way, we want to be familiar with the characteristics of true wisdom that comes from above. And so uh, we're going to look at that, how to recognize wisdom from above. So the first thing that we recognize from these verses we just read is that wisdom is selfless and it leads to good works. Wisdom is selfless and it leads to good works. The world's brand of wisdom is contrary to this. The world would tell you that the best way to live life is to get the most out of it by any means necessary. That the, the best version of life that you could live is a life where you fulfill all of your desires. But 
that's not the wisdom that comes from God because the wisdom that comes from God tells us that the best life we could live is one where we fulfill our purpose, right? So that's not a life lived elevating our own status and elevating our own pleasure, but rather humbling ourselves and being a servant to God and a servant to those around us. And so we've read previously in James that faith without works is what? Dead, right? That true, authentic, active, living faith leads to good works. And that's the evidence that it's real, is that we see good works. And so in a similar way, we could say that wisdom leads to good works. True wisdom is, is not just a concept, but it's something that, live, that is lived out, right? And this is important because I think it's easy to fall into the mindset that the peak of faith and the peak of wisdom is having a lot of intellectual knowledge. And it's being able to quote a lot of scripture. It's being able to uh, have a deep understanding of theological concepts. But faith and wisdom, it's, it's more than just the conceptual. The peak of faith and the peak of wisdom, according to James, is lived out and it's practiced. It translates into our behavior. So that's the first thing, is that wisdom is selfless and it leads to good works. The second thing is wisdom and humility go together. So in Proverbs 15, it says, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. So wisdom and humility go hand in hand because when you humble yourself, you're able to be teachable, and you're able to receive wisdom. You're able to grow in wisdom. And the more you grow in wisdom, the more you'll realize that it is wise to be humble. And so humility leads to more wisdom and wisdom leads to more humility. So they go hand in hand and they create this cycle. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is that wisdom favors peace with others. Wisdom favors peace with others. The third point is right in line with the first two because if you're selfless and if you're humble, generally that translates to peace with the people around you. It's the attitudes of selfishness and pride that lead to conflict with the people around you. And we see this if we read on uh, to chapter 4, verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You're, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so this is important to understand that every sin isn't, I'm sorry, every desire isn't a sin, but every sin starts with a desire. Okay, every desire isn't sin, but every sin starts with a desire. And so we see this if we jump back to James chapter 1. It says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then his desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so there is a type of desire 
that's inherently sinful. And the Bible would call that lust. But, but I think that James is talking about more than just that because we saw in, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so that would imply that there are certain desires that are good and that God wants to fulfill if we just ask him, right? So every sin, every desire is not sin, but every sin starts with a desire. It's at the root of every sin, and it's at the root of every conflict. That's what we see in James chapter 4. He asks, what is causing the fights among you? What is causing the quarrels? And the answer is conflicting desires, conflicting passions. I want this, and you want this, and they don't align. I don't want what you want, or I don't want what you want in the way that you want. And so desire starts all of these problems. So what do we do with desire is the, is the natural question, because desire in and of itself may not be wrong, but within it lies the potential for all this conflict and all these fights and all these quarrels and all this sin. So I think that James teaches us there are three things that we can do with our desire. So what to do with desire? The first thing is acknowledge, right? So we should be honest with ourselves about what our desires are. We should be honest with God about what our desires are. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, we should be honest with the people around us about what it is that we desire. This is especially important in close relationships, whether that's uh, parents or friends or spouse, a lot of times we can be frustrated with the people around us because of something that we want from them, but we've never expressed that thing. And a lot of times it's better to express what it is that you desire rather than to grow bitter toward that person. So there comes a time that we have to acknowledge our desires, whether it's to ourselves, whether it's to God, whether it's to the people around us. Now, I said earlier that not every desire needs to be uh, said to everybody. And so the, the next step, the next thing that we do with desire uh, plays a key role in this. The next thing that we do with desire is examine. All right, scripture tells us to examine our desires. In Psalm chapter 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So it's important that we examine ourselves. This is something that scripture repeats often, that we should examine ourselves, we should search our heart. Because not all desires are good desires. And not all desires are for a good reason. And not all desires are prioritized appropriately. So I'll give you an example of each of these, right? Let's say you're a young person, like all of us here. And let's say that your desire is you want a spouse, okay? You'd like to get married. You want to find that husband, that wife. You want a spouse. If you're already married, that would be a bad desire, right? <laughs> right off the bat, if you were to examine that desire, you could come to the conclusion that that goes in the category of not a good desire, okay? So that's the first scenario. Second scenario, let's say that you're single, and you would want a spouse, but the reason that you want a spouse is because you're battling with self-hatred and depression and a lack of purpose, and you're hoping that that person will come into your life and fix all of your problems for you, right? 
that would be a desire for a bad reason. Because wanting a spouse, it's a beautiful thing to want if it's for the right reason. And so that's one of the reasons we have to examine ourselves is because sometimes we can want a good thing, but for the wrong reason. Third and last scenario, we can sometimes have our priorities out of order. And so let's say that you want a spouse and it's for a good reason, right? You want to be joined with a godly person. You want to love and serve them. You want to love and serve God and people alongside them. Beautiful thing to want. But what if that thing has consumed your mind to the point where it's all you think about, it's all you talk about, and it's taken precedence over your relationship with God? Then at that point, yes, it might be a good desire, and yes, it might even be for a good reason, but it's not being prioritized appropriately. And this is a problem that I fell into a lot in my early life. When I was single, I went through seasons where I would make an idol out of the idea of being in a relationship, and I would obsess over it, and I thought that that was my greatest hope for happiness and fulfillment was being in a relationship. And so God had to bring me out of that before I was ready to step into that season of my life. And then even farther down the road when I was dating my now wife, Sarah, there came a point when I knew I wanted to marry her, and I was eager to propose And God had to put a pause on that because he showed me I was prioritizing my relationship with her over my relationship with him. And so it was a good thing to want. And it was something that God eventually did give me by his grace. But it wasn't the time because my priorities were out of order. So sometimes we examine our desires and we find that we're just putting too much importance on certain things. And so when that's the case, what what do we do with that desire? The next step is to surrender. That's the last thing that we do with desires. We surrender our desires. And now, surrendering your desires to God, it doesn't necessarily mean you give up on the idea of ever having that. Okay? Because it might be a desire that God wants to give you. It might even be a desire that you should be working toward in some capacity. But what surrendering your desire to God really means is that you say to God, yes, I want this thing, but despite what I want, I want your will, and I want it on your terms. God demonstrated this in an amazing way uh, through his son Jesus when he was praying in the garden before he was crucified. He asked God, God, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so he surrendered his desire to the Father. He said, yes, this is my desire right now, but if it's the choice of my desire versus your will and your plan, I choose your will. And so that's something that that we have to do sometimes. It doesn't mean we're giving up on what we want, but it does mean we're giving it to God and we're entrusting it to him. And so maybe people in this room right now have a very strong desire for something that they would like to see happen in their life, whether it's that school that you're wanting to get into, it's that job you're wanting to get, it's that relationship that you want, it's that family that you want to start. And that might be a good desire, it might even be in God's will for you, but I want to challenge each and every one of us tonight to be able to say to God, yes, I want this, yes, I desire this. But if it's this thing, 
or your will for my life, I choose your will because I know your will is good. I know it's better than my plan, and God, help me to be content with that. So that's what surrendering looks like. So that's the three things we do with desires. We acknowledge them, we examine them, and we surrender them to God. Let's move on to uh, verse four of James chapter four. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So let me pause real quick and define that word world. Um, The word world in the New Testament is generally translated three different ways. It can mean planet Earth. It can mean mankind or the inhabitants of planet Earth. Or the third way that the word world is used, and this is the case in this passage right here, is world means the ungodly culture of the world, okay? So it's talking about the ungodly culture of the world. And he goes on to say, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so that verse about being friends with the world, verse four, that's a verse that I hear quoted a lot. And usually when I hear it quoted, it's in the context of Christians interacting with non-Christians, Christians working with or fellowshipping with non-Christians. So maybe you'll see like a, a famous, influential Christian, and he'll be spotted with a celebrity, and people will go, oh, careful. The Bible says we're not supposed to be friends with the world. And does this verse apply to those situations? Maybe sometimes it does, maybe sometimes it doesn't. But what I can tell you is that that's not the context of this verse. Because in James chapter 4, he's not writing to Christians about how they're interacting with non-Christians. He's not writing to people in the church about how they're interacting with people outside of the church. He's writing to people in the church about how they're interacting with one another. Right? He's saying, you're being led by your desires. It's in conflict with one another. It's leading to fights within the church. And because of this, you're behaving as though you're a friend of the world. So it's really interesting to see that being a friend of the world doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with if you're friends with people in the world, like friends with non-believers, friends with people outside of the church. You can be a friend of the world with an entirely Christian friend group. You can be a friend of the world while being entirely cut off from worldly influences because being a friend of the world, as James describes it, it's about adopting the mentality of the world. It's about thinking like the world thinks and doing what the world says to do. That's what being a friend of the world really means. So everybody is susceptible to that. Everybody is in danger of adopting that mindset. It's not about necessarily who you're around and who you're hanging out with. It's more about What wisdom are you living by? Are you living by the wisdom that comes from above or the wisdom that comes from the world? And so, as we move on to the last portion of what we're going to cover tonight, in verses 7 through 10, uh, James gives a series of instructions to close. Uh, And I'm going to highlight three of them because these particular three, what's special about them is that 
they each have a promise attached to them. And I'm a practical guy, so I like the Bible to tell me, okay, if you, if you do this, you're going to get this result. And the Bible's not always that straightforward, but, but every once in a while, the Bible says, listen, if you honor God in this way, you will see blessings from it. You will see results from it. And so these are three examples of that. The first one is resist the devil, and he will flee. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Um, my father-in-law is a black belt in jujitsu, and luckily he likes me. And a cool thing that he did was he taught a self-defense class, and it was specifically designed for women. And so my wife and I went and participated in this, and uh, she learned the self-defense techniques, and I played the role of the attacker, so she had somebody to try out the techniques on. So essentially, she got a free pass to beat me up for a couple of hours, which I imagine was very therapeutic for her. So we took this class, and the class was open to women of any level of experience with fighting, okay? And so my father-in-law, he taught the class from a very practical and realistic perspective. And so what he told them is that the techniques I'm teaching you, it's not necessarily for you to defeat the attacker in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Because the person might be stronger, the person might be more experienced. That's not the goal. The goal, rather, is to make it as difficult as possible for the attacker to accomplish his goal, right? Because when an attacker picks a target, he's doing that in the hopes that it's going to be quick, it's going to be quiet, it's going to be easy, right? Do not let your attacker move you from the point of contact. Meaning, if you can run to safety, by all means run to safety, but if that's not an option, do not let the attacker move you from where you are to where he wants you to be. And so he taught various techniques. He taught ways that they could stand and leverage their body weight to make it difficult to move them. He taught them techniques to escape the grasp of somebody who's trying to carry them away. And he taught them counterattacks to frustrate the opponent. So here's why this is important, because the thing about a situation like that is the attacker will only put up with so much resistance. They want it to be quick. They want it to be easy. And if they see that it is easy to move you, then they have no reason to stop their attack. They have every reason to keep going and trying to accomplish whatever it is they're wanting to accomplish. And here's the application, right? If the devil can move you from where you are, if the devil sees that it's easy to get you to compromise on something that you know is right and choose what you know is wrong, then he has no reason to stop his attack. If the devil sees that it's easy for you to forsake something that's true and believe a lie instead, he has no reason to stop his attack. If God has called you to a specific purpose, a specific role to play in his kingdom, and the enemy sees that it's easy to get you to forsake that calling, to give up on it, to push it off, to procrastinate, then he has no reason to stop attacking you because he sees that you're able to be moved from the point of contact. But if we resist the devil, James is telling us that our attacker will only put up with so much resistance. Right? If we 
If we say, I'm not going to let you move me from my purpose, I'm not going to let you move me from my calling, I'm not going to let you move me from my conviction, from my faith, from the will of God. If we resist the devil, James tells us that the enemy will flee. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. This is right before he lists all the pieces of the armor of God that we put on. He gives the reason that we're putting on the armor of God. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Jump down to verse 13. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So notice, Paul doesn't say, put on the full armor of God so that you can overpower the devil, so that you can bully the devil. He says that you can stand, that you can withstand the attacks, that you can resist. Now, to be clear, I think scripture teaches there are times for the church to take the offensive and to make advances against the kingdom of darkness. But it's also my belief that on a day-to-day basis, the majority of our battle against the enemy is to stand. It's to stand our ground and it's to say to the enemy, you're not going to move me from the point of contact. I'm staying within the will of God. The next instruction that James gives, and these next two will be quicker. The next one is move closer to God and he will move closer to you. Move closer to God and the promise that comes with that is he'll move closer to you. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that God rewards those who seek him, right? So he, he cares about the fact that you want more of him. He, he sees you, he hears you, he knows the desires of your heart. And if your genuine desire is to know and experience God more, he sees that, he recognizes that, and he values that. That prayer that you pray all alone in your room when you're not even 100% sure that there is a God who can hear you. I believe God cares about that prayer. I believe he hears that. And if you're willing to take a step of faith and pursue God, he promises that he will move closer to you. The third instruction, and this is the last one, says be humble before God and he will lift you up. Be humble before God, and he'll lift you up. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So this is the way that things are set up within God's kingdom. This is the wisdom that comes from above. It's different than the wisdom that comes from the world, because the world would advise you to to lift yourself up, to... uh, to, to increase your value and to, to increase your esteem in the world. The world would advise you that you need to make a name for yourself and that you need to command the respect and the admiration of the people around you. But that's not the wisdom that comes from above. The wisdom that comes from above says, if you humble yourself, you don't need to exalt yourself because God will do it on your behalf. God is the one who will lift you up. And so uh, I want to invite the the worship team to come back and and close this out in song. But as they're coming, I want to leave you with one more passage of Scripture from Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, 25 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And so notice it doesn't say 
There's a way that seems right to a man, but do it God's way because he wants to control you. It doesn't say there's a way that seems right to a man, but do it God's way instead because he doesn't want to see you win. He doesn't want to see you enjoy yourself. It doesn't say any of that, but what it says is there's a way that seems right to us. There's, there's a way to live that the world says is wise. There's a path that from our human understanding seems like a good path to take, but at the end of that path, there's nothing for you but death, meaning that there are real consequences to choosing the world's wisdom over the wisdom of God. God doesn't tell us to live by his wisdom just so he can have control over us, but the wisdom of God is for our benefit. We benefit from living this way because, like I said before, there's no one better equipped to tell us how to operate in this world than the one who created us and the world in which we live. He knows how it all works. He knows how it was designed to work. And so there's nothing wiser that we could do then choose to follow this God. And so James tells us that God generously offers his wisdom to his children, to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. His wisdom is available to each and every one of us. And so if up until this point you've been living according to the off-brand wisdom, the knockoffs, the copycats, everything that the world says this is the way to make it through life. This is your higher purpose. This is your higher calling. This is the path toward fulfillment, toward purpose. If you've been living according to that, I wanna encourage you tonight to choose the real thing, to choose the true wisdom that comes from God and to live according to the way he designed. And with that, I just wanna close this in prayer. God, thank you so much for your love, God, thank you for making your wisdom available to us. I thank you that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. That you're a God who cares about us, who knows us, who hears our prayers. God, help us to, to be discerning enough to see the deception, to see that what the world offers just doesn't measure up to what you have available. God, help us to walk in your will for our lives and to stand firm against the enemy, God. Help us not to be moved from your will and from your purpose for our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to know more about The Harbor, please follow us on Instagram at wearetheharbor. Also, if you need prayer, feel free to send us a DM. Otherwise, tune in next time.